I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, book of 1 Peter chapter 2. In his book, The Four Loves, uh, C.S. Lewis describes something that he calls gift love. Uh, and the easiest way to explain it is just to use examples. So uh, a parent gives food and clothing and shelter. A teacher gives instruction and critique and encouragement. That is gift love, where uh, a child or a student uh, receives from the one who gives. But then uh, C.S. Lewis points out how gift love can be misused. And he turns especially to the relationship between parents and children. He says that the instinct many parents have is to love in such a way that, that keeps their children in a state of needing them to give that love. And while it's true that the parent genuinely loves the child, it's also true that the parent is satisfying his or her own need to be needed, as Lewis puts it. He writes, the proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where he no longer needs our gift. Thus, a heavy task is laid upon this gift love. It must work towards its own abdication. We must aim at making ourselves unneeded. The hour when we can say they need me no longer should be our reward. Now, C.S. Lewis is, is not simply making the same point as the proverb, you know, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. He's effectively saying that if we're not careful, we can get addicted to the good feeling we get when someone else needs us. We don't teach them to fish because we like the fact that they have to come to us every day to receive what we can give. So we're not actually meeting their need, we're satisfying our own. And so the point he's making is that our giving, our love, has to be truly sacrificial. Not only that we're giving, but that we're giving in such a way that we are uh, not fulfilling our own ravenous need to be needed, as he puts it. I was thinking about that passage in the Four Loves this week as I was thinking about um, the intersection between this passage we're going to read in 1 Peter 2 and Father's Day. If I, could, if I could coin a term this morning, I don't know if anybody else has ever used this, but godly fathers should be sacrificers in chief. We should be the chief sacrificers in our home and in our churches, giving of our time and energy and attention and affection, not because we need to be needed, but simply because that is the example that Christ has set for us. And at the same time, our only hope in life and death is not the sacrifices that we make for our families, whether we are fathers or not. It's the sacrifice that Jesus made in our place to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. And here's the thing. Jesus suffered and set this example not only for Christian fathers, but for every one of his followers. So there's kind of two, two levels here. One is, if you are a father, then we should be striving harder than anyone to, to follow the example of Jesus in, in giving sacrificially. Uh, and then, if you're not a father, then 
so should you. We all should be striving to, to see this and to follow him. And so let's read together in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Peter writes, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what you would have to show us and say to us through your word, Spirit of God. We pray that you would um, take this word that you have inspired, that you would impress it upon our hearts and help us to see the fullness of who Jesus is for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to start by just <clears throat> cutting straight to the big idea of this passage that we're going to, to see here together. And it is that Christ suffered as our substitute and our example. Christ suffered as our substitute and our Example, And I pulled that big idea from verse 21 where Peter says, To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ suffered for you as our substitute and he suffered to leave you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So when Peter says... To this you have been called. He's talking about the call to endure unjust suffering. He's just said at the end of verse 20, If when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That is what Peter is talking about when he says, To this you have been called. So if you have been called to salvation, then you have also been called to do good and suffer for it, to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Of course, Peter is, is far from being the only biblical writer to say such a thing. I want to give you a couple other examples. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And then Acts chapter 5, verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So, over and over, you see this truth 
that those who are called to salvation are called also to walk in the way of Jesus, to take up their cross daily and deny themselves. And yet there is this insidious lie that identifies God's blessing with material gain or health or ease of life or, or self-fulfillment. And I just want to plead with you not to believe that lie. We need to check that our definition of blessing matches what God says blessing is. God says that you are blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says that you are blessed when other people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we see in the life of the early church that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That is what God says blessing is. So if you've been called to follow Jesus, you've been called to deny yourself and take up your cross. He is both our substitute and our example. And those two truths go hand in hand. They complement one another. They balance one another. If you downplay one or neglect one, you're going to inevitably slide into error. And so let's look closely at each of those truths. First, that Christ is our substitute. Christ suffered as our substitute. So Paul says briefly in verse 21, Christ suffered for you. And, and any time you see a phrase like that in the New Testament, that Christ suffered for you or died for you, that phrase for you means in your place, that he suffered the suffering you deserved. And in the verse that follows, uh, in the verses that follow, he unpacks what he means by that. He says in verse 22 that Jesus committed no sin. Then in verse 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So the sins for which Jesus died were not his own because he committed no sin. Instead, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So there is an exchange that you can hear there. It's our sins, but it's on his body. He had no sin. Instead, he bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he is our substitute. Peter is almost certainly uh, thinking about Isaiah 53 here when he says this. Isaiah describes this same exchange in Isaiah 53. He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So our iniquity laid on him. Our transgressions, he was pierced for them, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. So that is the exchange. And if you remove this element, from the work of Christ, if you ignore or downplay his role as our substitute, then what you're left with is a really good man who inspired us with his good example or maybe makes us feel bad because we can't live up to his good example. But he was this really good man who lived a long time ago and unfortunately he died under some bad circumstances, but that's it. If Jesus is only our example, 
and he's not our substitute, then we are hopeless because we're still in our sins. Our problem was never that we, we needed a better example. There's nobody here whose problem, whose greatest problem in the world is that we just need a better example. Our fundamental base problem at the ground level is that apart from God's grace in Christ, I and you were absolutely unwilling and unable to obey God. That's why he sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself by, de- by his death in our place. So it's also important to notice where this death took place. Verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, why doesn't Peter say he bore our sins in his body on the cross? That's what he means. But by referring to it as the tree, he reminds us that crucifixion, dying on the cross, was not only a shameful way to die in the eyes of men. It was the most shameful way a person could die. But even beyond that, to die on the cross was to die under God's curse. In the Old Testament, God said that everyone who dies by hanging on a tree is under His curse. So dying on the cross, yes, it was a shameful way to die before men. But more than that, it indicated that this person is under the curse of God. And Paul picks up on that idea in Galatians 3 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But by saying he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter is emphasizing that point. He's emphasizing the fact that Christ became a curse in our place. We could not state that point strongly enough that the condemnation, the damnation that we deserved because of our sin, that is what Christ bore in our place. He who was sinless bore our sins. The perfect, holy wrath of God which we deserved He absorbed. He died the death that we had earned with our sin. So he suffered as our substitute. If we fail to see that aspect of what Jesus did for us, we're failing to see all that he is for us. And the same goes for the other truth. He's not only our substitute, he's also our example. So Christ suffered as our substitute and our example. So again, these two truths balance one another. If If you cling to one or not the other, you're going to get yourself into error because you're not going to be saying all that the Bible says that Jesus is for us. If Jesus is only our example and not our substitute, then we're hopeless because there's no way we could ever live up to that example. He was literally sinless. So we can't live up to that example. That's why he has to be our substitute. On the other hand... If all we say about Jesus is that he's our substitute and he's not our example, then we're going to be awfully confused when hardships come our way because we're going to be thinking to ourselves, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus suffered for me. 
If he suffered for me, then why am I still suffering? And we may respond to those trials in a less than Christ-like way. So Peter says in verse 21, Christians have been called to endure unjust suffering. Notice, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He suffered for you in your place as a substitute, but he also did so leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And the word translated as example, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, it's a word that would have been used in a classroom, in a, in a school setting where uh, a teacher is giving a student something to trace over. So imagine um, a teacher who's, who's helping students learn how to write their letters. And, you know, I'm sure you can envision something like this. You know, the little kids have a paper and there's a big letter A on it. And they're, they're told to, to take their pencil or their crayon or whatever and to, to trace over the letter A, right? And what they're doing is they're learning the motions. They're just sort of developing that muscle memory of up, down, across, up, down, across. And they practice that over and over, tracing over what the teacher has given them. And they're learning the movements that are needed to write the letter A and B and C and so forth. That's the idea here that when Jesus suffered in our place as our substitute, he was also giving us, leaving us a pattern to follow, saying this is what it means to live a life of Christ-likeness. Now, when Peter says that Christ suffered to leave us an example, this is really important. He does not mean that our suffering serves the same purpose as Jesus' suffering. Importantly, Jesus, or excuse me, importantly, our suffering does not save us. It is Jesus' suffering in our place that saves us. There are, you know, certain branches of Christianity out there who, who sort of treat suffering as it's this thing you have to go through in order to really fully deal with your sins. The problem with that is that what that essentially says is that the sacrifice of Jesus is not sufficient. So it's not that I have to go through hardships because, you know, yeah, Jesus got me almost there, but I've got to get the rest of the way there and I've got to go through some suffering for my sin. It is that the righteous suffering of those who follow Jesus demonstrates that I have been saved that He's not just my Savior, but He is my Lord, and that I identify with Him, not only in the power of His resurrection, but also in His suffering. So suffering for righteousness' sake is not a way that we earn salvation. It's a way that we identify with Christ and we grow in conformity to His likeness. So what that means is that when we say Christ suffered as our substitute, we do not mean that He suffered so that we would never have to suffer. It doesn't mean that he went through all this bad stuff in his life so that nothing bad will ever happen to me. It means that whatever bad happens to me in my life is not a sign that God is angry at me, that I'm not bearing the punishment for my sins because God has already dealt the punishment for my sins to Christ. He has already poured out the fullness of his wrath on Jesus. So sometimes when people go through hardships, they say, you know, God must be angry at me. If you're a child of God, He's not mad at you. He loves you. And the hardship, the trial, the suffering, whatever it is, 
is not a sign of his anger, it's a sign of his love. Now, that doesn't mean that you're sinless, you're perfect, you're good. A loving father disciplines his children, not because he's mad at them, but because he loves them. And so it may be that whatever hardship or trial, God may be trying to teach you something. So I can't sit here and say, well, you know, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, that hardship, that trial, you know, no, that, that, that you're good, you're good. Uh, no, it may be that God's trying to teach you something. It may be that he's trying to weed out some, some sin in your life. But he's not doing that because he's angry at you, because he's got some pent-up rage at you. He's doing that because he loves you. And he's trying to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. That's why Peter tells us not just that Jesus suffered, but he also tells us how he suffered. Notice verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter tells us, he doesn't just say, Jesus suffered for you. He doesn't just say that he did that to leave an example, but he, he gives us some specific examples of here's how he suffered. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So his righteousness, his mercy, his faith in suffering, that he's entrusting himself to him who judges justly, those are our examples. And so what I want to do now is I want us to turn to the question of how. We've heard Peter tell us uh, that all Christians are called to endure unjust suffering. He gives us two reasons why. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And now we come to the question of how. How can we endure unjust suffering in a way that honors God? Peter gives us some hints at this. Look back at verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I want you to just focus for a moment on that phrase, mindful of God. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Not just that you get through it, not, that just, not just that you sort of you know, toughen up your, your, your upper lip and you just sort of mm, grit your teeth and get through it, but that you do it mindful of God. That is blessedness when you endure it mindful of God. So how do you suffer in a way that honors God? The short answer is you do it by being mindful of God. You look beyond the circumstances of your hardship and you think about God. That means that something has to happen in your head. You factor Him into the equation. So, okay, all right, so I, I honor God by thinking about Him. But what do I think about Him, Matt? Well, I want to show you a few things that we can see here in this passage, truths about God which we should call to mind that honor Him. First is that God sees perfectly. God sees perfectly. Notice again the end of verse 20. He says, But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 25, You were straying like sheep but now have now returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. He uses these two words. Shepherd is this one who, who is guiding, who says, I, I see the big picture. Um, I see where we need to get, and, and I know how to get you there. And he uses the word overseer, which is a word that would have been used of a shepherd. So think of a shepherd who he's not just looking at the destination that he needs to get his flock to, but that he's looking at the flock. He's standing up above them. He says, I see my sheep. I see what they're enduring, and I care about them. They are my sheep. That's the idea here. He's, Peter's reminding us that all of our lives... All of our lives, joys, hardships, they're all lived in the sight of God, before the face of God. There is nothing that escapes His gaze, nothing that slips past His watchful eye. I love the, I love the story um, uh, of Jesus telling the, the disciples to get in a boat, cross over to the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to stay up here on the mountain and pray. So He tells them, I want you to go down there, get in that boat, go to the other side. I'm going to stay up here and pray, and then I'll, I'll catch up with you. So they get out there, and they start rowing, right? It's the middle of the night, uh, and then suddenly, boom, violent storm comes down on them. Uh, John says in his account of the gospel that they were about three or four miles out when this storm hits. So they're, they're rowing. They get three or four miles away from shore, and then, bam, the storm hits. Listen to what Mark says. Mark says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. That's one of those sentences that's real easy to just kind of skim over, but then you think about it and you think, okay, it's the middle of the night, it's pitch black. They are several miles away in the midst of a violent storm, and yet, Mark says, he saw. He saw them. He's the overseer. We need to hear this today, right? That God sees. If you're going through some kind of trial, you're not alone in it. There is one who has you in his sight. And there is no darkness, no storm, no distance that could cloud or obscure his vision of one who is his own. And we have to remind ourselves of that. We have to discipline ourselves to be mindful of this truth. That's the point of saying mindful of God. That you can't just expect that you're going to go through it and there's going to be this big billboard that pops up and reminds you, God sees you. But that we have to discipline ourselves to be mindful of this truth that God sees perfectly. Here's a second truth that we can call to mind. God plans wisely. God plans wisely. Peter says in verse 21, To this you have been called. Meaning, hardship is not an accident. It's not like God gets caught off guard and says, Oh man, I didn't see that trial around the corner. He says from the very beginning, Just so you know, this is what's in store for you. I mean, Jesus was very clear, wasn't he? If anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross and deny themselves daily. So he, didn't, he never obscured that. He's never caught off guard by that. He plans it. In that, in that story of Jesus sending the disciples, you could ask the question, why were they out there in that storm? You know, why did they have to go through that? Is it because uh, Jesus said, wait here, and when I get done praying, 
we'll all together go get in the boat and go to the other side. But they got impatient and they decided, nah, we won't wait on Jesus. We'll just go ahead by ourselves. No, they were out there in the middle of that storm precisely because they did what Jesus told them to do. He said, go get in the boat and go to the other side. They were right in the middle of God's will, as we would say. They were doing exactly what he told them to do. They were obeying his word, and yet they get caught in the middle of this terrifying storm that made them think, we're going to die. God wisely plans hardship for us in the same way because he is more concerned with us growing in holiness and growing in likeness to his son than he is in us living the easiest, most trouble-free life possible. Now, an important qualifier here that Peter makes is that we need to distinguish between uh, suffering for righteousness' sake and suffering for unrighteousness' sake. Peter, uh, he makes this distinction Sometimes hardship can be the result of sin. That's not always the case, but sometimes it can be. God calls every believer to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. So if you get, you know, if you're in the middle of some hardship or trial and you say, okay, this is because of, of my foolishness, my sin, then by all means, repent. Turn from that. Don't expect that God's going to make the storm subside immediately. But, um, but oftentimes, the, the point is, even when you're doing your best to follow the will of God for your life, even when you're doing your best to obey His Word, He still plans wisely for you to walk through these trials because he's concerned for you to grow in your likeness to Christ. And again, we have to discipline ourselves to be mindful of this truth, that nothing is happening outside the wise plan of God. He sees perfectly. He plans wisely. And then the third truth that we can call to mind is that God judges justly. God judges justly. In verse 23... Peter says of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, I have, I've made this point in a number of ways uh, the past few weeks as we've been talking about uh, being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution uh, and, and as we saw last week where Peter talks about servants being subject to your masters, if you, if you want to know about that, you can go and listen to the, the last two sermons. There is a, a way that we could uh, pervert what Peter's saying here, saying, okay, well, you know, if, you're, uh, if someone is, is harming you or, or abusing you in some way, that you just kind of need to keep your mouth shut and just get through it. I don't want us to, to make that mistake here. When he says Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The application for us is not, you know, if there's somebody who is, who is in a relationship of, of abuse or manipulation or something like that, that you just sort of, you know, kind of just entrust it to God and he'll take care of you. No, you know, call the police, <laughs> Uh, that's part of what it means to entrust it to him. Um, 
But there is a sense in which there are some things that, that come our way, not because someone is trying to harm us or abuse us, but just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes um, people are, are not going to understand uh, what it means to follow Christ. And so we're going to be doing our best to, to follow Him, to, to live out the truth that He's called us to live out and the mercy that He's called us to live out, and they're going to hate us for that. And we have to be ready for that, to be reviled and to suffer and not to return that, not to revile in return, not to threaten in return, not to bow up and assert our strength, but to humble ourselves and entrust all things to the one who judges justly. When Peter says there in verse 23 that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, the word himself is not there in, in the Greek. Uh, it's, it's added by translators to help make sense of the sentence, to make it flow a little bit better. But in Greek it simply says, Jesus continued entrusting to him who judges justly. Of course, he entrusted himself to God, but he also entrusted all other things to him who judges justly. So the one way we could say it is that when Jesus endured injustice... He entrusted all things to the God of all justice. He knew that one day I and all of these people are going to be held accountable by God. And Jesus knew, of course, that even though he was being reviled, even though he was suffering, even though he was being threatened, even though he was being killed, that just a few short days later God was going to vindicate him. And that all these people who are reviling him and wagging their heads at him and calling him names and the ones who are driving the nails through his hands and feet, that they would one day have to stand before the God who judges justly. And so because of that, Jesus said, I don't need to return their threats. I don't need to revile in return because in just a few days I'm going to be vindicated. And one day they're going to have to stand before God and they're going to have to give an account. And the same is true for us. If, if, if I'm in Christ, there is going to come a day when I stand before God and because of faith in Christ, because of the perfect righteousness of Christ, not because of my goodness, not because of my righteousness, I'm going to be vindicated. And the same is true for every, every person. They're either going to be vindicated or they're going to be condemned, not because of how righteous or unrighteous they were, but whether they trusted in Christ and repented of their sins. So you and I can do the same thing. If there is someone who is hurling threats at you or someone who is reviling you in some way, our desire should be not to return that, but to have compassion on that person because they are blind to the glory of God in Christ. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. Our desire should be not that God would rain down fire from heaven on them, but that the Holy Spirit of God would convict them of their sins and that they would turn in faith to Christ and be saved and that God would change their heart. But in order for us to be mindful of God, we have to look past our circumstances. We have to see beyond what is right before our eyes. We have to plead with God to give us eyes to see His care for us his wisdom over us and his justice toward us and toward all things and all people. We have to actively discipline ourselves to remember that God has not forsaken us. 
He has not forgotten us, that He wisely ordains hardship as a refining fire to make us more like Jesus, that He judges justly, that all He does is always right, and that He is worthy of our trust. He is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. He is the one who cares tenderly for us and at the same time has all authority and power to do all that He pleases. This is who He is for us. He is our substitute. He's our example. He's the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the judge of all the earth. He is the one whom God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. This is the one we're called to trust in. And this is the one we're called to follow. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is an opportunity for us today to respond to the word of God and uh, I just want to ask you, uh, in your own heart, nobody shout anything out, but just in your own heart, in your own mind, to think about these two truths of Jesus as our substitute and Jesus as our example. Which of those two truths am I inclined to emphasize to the neglect of the other? So here's, here's some ways that might play out. If I constantly fixate on Jesus as my example, then I'm probably going to either despair because I just think, man, I, man, I try so hard, but I can never live up to that. Or I become a Pharisee, right? I, I sort of walk around and, and I'm kind of like the guy who sort of says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these sinners. You know, I'm the one who's walking in the way of Jesus and everybody else is, is falling short. So that, that may be one, one way. The other possibility is that you, you emphasize in your mind, in your heart, the, the substitution that Jesus made for you, and you just think, well, you know what, sin, no big deal. You know, God dealt with it in Christ, so you kind of do what Paul told us not to do, which is you say, go on sinning so that grace may abound. Either way, all of us are inclined to sort of lean one way or the other. We struggle to sort of walk in that balance of those two truths. So I just want to encourage you to examine your heart uh, and to ask yourself which one of those and, and find some way to remind yourself day after day of the totality of that, of who Jesus is for you and for us. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word Lord, I pray we would be reminded today of what uh, a joy it should be for us that we can take up your word and read it and hear from the living and true God. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would not only be hearers of your word, but be doers as well. And God, I pray that the result of our having heard your word today would be that we would have a, a, a reminder today of a full vision of who Jesus is for us. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you suffered in our place, that you bore the wrath that we deserved, that you died the death that we deserved. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you lived the sinless life that we could not live. And we're also thankful, Jesus, that you have set an example for us. Lord, we know that we can never fully, perfectly live up to that example this side of heaven but I pray by your Spirit that you would enable us to strive for that, to, to strive to walk in likeness to you. And Lord, that our eyes would not be fixed on, 
others around us and, and how they may fall short or how, may they, how they may run ahead of us, but Lord, that we would just keep our eyes fixed on you. And uh, God, that we would see how you are working in our life to, to conform us to your son, Jesus. God, help us to be reminded of these truths today that you see perfectly, that you plan wisely and you judge justly. And God, that that our hearts would respond rightly to that, not only today, but in the time of trial and the time of hardship, that we would be mindful of you. And Lord, now as we come to this time of response, I pray that you would enable us to lift our eyes, to see your glory and your beauty, to trust in you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.